As you know, we're studying the Apostles' Creed this fall, and this week we're diving into an especially hot topic—hell. I believe in Jesus Christ who descended into hell. I know a few of you hear that and think, what the heck? What does that even mean? And, and how should I feel about this? Because at first blush, I don't like it. Did Jesus literally go to hell? I mean, is hell even a real place to go? Many people aren't sure. According to a recent, recent Gallup poll, only 60% of Americans believe that hell is real. Some Christians aren't so sure either. Years ago, a pastor named Rob Bell wrote a book questioning popular perceptions of hell, and it became an instant bestseller because he was asking questions that a lot of people wonder about, including many of us. Years ago, I used to be invited to a local college campus so that students could ask questions they had about faith. A few students just wanted to trip me up or make me look stupid, which I do fine on my own. But most had very sincere questions about Christianity that they'd never had a chance to ask anyone before. And every time, once we got past the ridiculous, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it kind of questions, once we got to the real questions, every time someone would ask about hell. And they were asking not so much because they were curious as because they were afraid usually because someone they loved, a parent, grandparent, or friend, had died, and they wanted to know where they went next. This was especially fraught when that person was not a Christian, their Buddhist grandmother or spiritually disinterested dad. And in light of the sermon we heard a few weeks ago about Jesus making the only way back to God, they wanted to know if I had any good news for them. Other people were Christians, but were just as afraid. Because if what they'd heard about hell is true, they weren't sure they could love God anymore. They didn't want to hear about hell because they loved God for, for so many reasons. But if he kept people alive forever just so that he could torture them forever, that sounds barbaric. Imagine I told you about my, my wonderful friend that I, I want to set you up with for a blind date. I mean, he's kind, he's funny, he's well-traveled, generous, great conversationalist. You're going to love him. Well, what does he do for work? Well, he flies around the world training terrorists and dictators in the latest torture techniques. But trust me, he, he's really a big teddy bear. You'll love him. You probably wouldn't go on that date. No matter how many other great qualities he has, you probably won't love him. Something that awful is impossible to ignore. And that's how many people feel about God when they hear about hell. He has a million great qualities, but if he tortures people eternally, that's hard to ignore. We call him Abba, our loving father, and we celebrate his patience, kindness, and self-sacrifice. But if he condemns people to that kind of hell, we wonder how loving he can really be. Can I love a God like that? This is why distortions of this doctrine matter so much. I fear we haven't just gotten hell wrong, but by so doing, we've gotten God all wrong. 
We've contorted our devoted Savior into a demented sadist. But that's backward. Quite to the contrary, the earliest Christians included this line about hell in the creed because they believe it highlights something unexpected and, and beautiful about God. It proved John's claim that God is love because this is how God put that love into practice. Today, I want you to see why this line about Jesus going to hell is such good news. So good that the earliest Christians wanted to say it over and over every time they talked about God. So I hope that you'll learn more about Jesus today. But along the way, you may need to unlearn some of what you think you know about hell. Years ago, I heard one of the world's leading physicists, Harvard's Lisa Randall, being interviewed. And I was surprised by how often she admitted, I don't know. In response to questions that seemed simple to me, I, mean, I studied physics in college, but, but several of those answers I'd learned back in high school. So how could Lisa Randall not know? Because the simple formulas I learned make sense only because I don't know as much as she does. Those simple, helpful, helpful formulas taught in high school break down when dealing with some of the more complex physics that she's exploring. And I think that's a good analogy for my experience studying hell. Long before I even became a Christian, I thought I had hell pretty much figured out from the countless comics and punchlines. But since then, I've read so much in the Bible and innumerable theological books. In grad school, I wrote a term paper about the historical and biblical basis of this doctrine. As a result, I now know less about hell than some of you do. Some Christians feel certain that their conception of hell is the only right one and are quick to criticize those who disagree. Indeed, the angry way they argue about hell may increase their risk of going there. Let's never do that. It's fine if we disagree, but let's discuss this with grace for each other and humility about ourselves. We'll need that humility because while the Bible is very clear about many things, it doesn't offer a detailed description of hell because it's more concerned with helping us avoid it than helping us understand it. God's goal isn't to frighten us into following Jesus by detailing what will happen if we don't, but entice us to follow Jesus so that we can have life to the full and life with Jesus that lasts forever. Nevertheless, the gruesome Halloween decorations everywhere remind us that humans are salaciously drawn to the macabre, including fear, suffering, darkness, and death. People seem far more interested in hell than the Bible is. So the early church fathers pieced together the hints the Bible does give about hell and combined it with their training in Greek philosophy to con construct a cogent picture. But this led the two most influential church fathers to very different conclusions. Origen, the most significant figure in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, emphasized God's love. So he insisted that God would save everyone, which is called universalism. 
Perhaps there'd be a period of pruning and discipline before some people finally made it to heaven, but eventually God would find a way to save everyone. Augustine, on the other hand, concentrated on God's justice. So he suggested that those who callously refused God's invitation to repentance and forgiveness in this life would be punished forever. And this became the basis for the most widely held conception of hell in the Western world, characterized by eternal conscious suffering. But notice the assumption that Origen and Augustine shared in common, and still prevails today in pop culture, that souls are immortal. They didn't learn that in the Bible, but from the Greek philosopher Plato. But subsequent Christian thinkers tried to make sense of the biblical evidence and moral issues in light of Plato's claim. Augustine's vision prevailed, but the popular understanding about hell was probably most influenced by Dante and Milton, writers who combined biblical and pagan imagery to create fanciful descriptions of hell. These are the illustrations for Dante's Inferno made by Giovanni Stradano. Gruesome, but beguiling. I, they didn't think they were depicting reality any more than makers of modern team vampires movies are. They were making fascinating art. But that eye-catching art became the lens through which people read the scriptures, causing them to cherry-pick the parts of scripture that supported Dante's creation. And when Christianity came to America, this vision became front and center. Most preachers depict God's judgment with far more gentleness and grace, but one of the most influential descriptions of it came from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God which was originally preached right here in New England and is still required reading in many high school curricula. Edwards detailed the terrors of hell with disturbing enthusiasm. At the time, his dramatic preaching helped spark a revival as people were frightened into faithfulness. But as I read this excerpt, pay attention to what it suggests about the character of God. Quote, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. End quote. This vivid language captures our attention, but it also turns our stomachs and I fear distorts not only our understanding of what the Bible says about hell, but our understanding of God himself. For years, anyone who objected to the conception of hell as eternal, conscious suffering was branded a heretic and condemned to a place they don't believe in. But in the past century, major Christian theologians have been pushing back by raising questions about the, what the Bible really says about hell. And some of the answers may surprise you. In this next section of the sermon is going to be a bit dense as we examine what the Bible says. Some of you will find this fascinating. Others may feel like hell would be a less painful alternative. Either way, 
This won't last forever, and afterward I'll show you why this line about Jesus descending into hell is immensely good news. As it turns out, the Old Testament reveals very little about what happens after death. Most scriptures vaguely suggest that death is the end, but a few indicate that we wait in some sort of stasis or, or sleep in a place called Sheol until we're raised to face the final judgment. The most provocative is Daniel 12, which declares, Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. The final book of the New Testament, Revelation, doesn't use the word hell, but repeatedly describes a second death that takes place after we die the first time. This means that perhaps all people are raised from death, and as Daniel said, some will continue to live forever, while some will die a second time that is more permanent. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, never used the word hell either, but he warned frequently of this final judgment which could result in death. For example, he writes in 2 Thessalonians of those who perish because they refused to love the truth, and so be saved. And in Romans, he warns, the wages of sin is death. Here, Paul's pointing back to Genesis, where God warned Adam and Eve, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So contrary to what Plato suggested, the Bible doesn't assert that our souls automatically live forever. No, le left to our own devices, death is the end of the story. But God loves too much to leave us to our own devices. Yes, sin leads to death. But in Jesus, God became one of us to show us his love and then to die for us. God paid the wages of our sin. This is part of what we're celebrating when we declare that Jesus descended into hell. As Paul puts it, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, speaking of Jesus, what did he have to say about hell? Actually, he says the most. In the Bible, the word hell is used almost exclusively by Jesus, who mentions it 12 times. But before we assume we know what he means, let's look at this word more closely. The original Greek word translated hell is Gehenna, which literally means the Valley of Hinnom. This was an actual valley on the southwestern edge of Jerusalem where there'd been a city dump for centuries. In Jesus' day, people tossed their trash over the cliff to the bottom where there was a constant fire that incinerated all the refuse while worms and wild animals ate whatever they could. So there were flames, worms, and gnashing of teeth. Sound familiar? Well, that's gnarly enough, but there was an even darker association with that place because several times in the Old Testament, Israelites sinfully sacrificed their children to false idols by throwing them into the fire in the Hinnom Valley. And Jesus used Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, as a metaphor for what happens to us after death, warning, 
It's a place where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Chilling. But you can see that this is very different from saying that the thing the worm eats doesn't die, or the thing being burned keeps burning forever. Clearly, Jesus thinks that hell is awful, but doesn't suggest that anyone will suffer there eternally. So why do many Christians today suppose that hell is a place of eternal conscious suffering? Perhaps it's the influence of Dante, Milton, and a million artists since, but even Jesus seemed to say this in our scripture passage today from Matthew 25, where he contends that those who refuse to help people in need will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Those two words translated eternal punishment in this version seem to confirm the popularized notions of hell. But let's look a bit closer. In Greek, those two words are kolosin ionion. Kolosin is a word from horticulture that literally means to cut or prune, though it's often used metaphorically to convey correction or consequences. Ionion can mean eternal or any extended period of time. So instead of eternal punishment, another reading of Colison Ionion could be a period of pruning in order to make a plant more fruitful, cut away the dead stuff, suffocating its growth. Interestingly, this sounds a lot like what Origen taught and some forms of purgatory. Alternatively, Colison Ionion could be translated cut off forever, which seems more consistent with Jesus's Gehenna metaphor. In that case, Ionion may not mean perpetual, but permanent, which sounds a lot like the final death that Paul, Revelation, and Daniel cautioned against. It echoes Jesus's warning that those who cling to evil will not be endlessly tortured, but will simply die and stay that way. In our culture, we've made a big deal of God sending people to hell. But what if we've gotten that story backward? Ever since Eden, death has been the natural order of things until Jesus changed all of that. God doesn't send people to hell. We do that all by ourselves. The real news is that by going to hell in our place, God miraculously saves people from hell, raising them from death to live with him forever. This is what we proclaim in baptism. Going down into the water is a depiction of death. But then we're raised back to new life by the compassion and power of Jesus. So if the first reason this line is in the Apostles' Creed is to celebrate that Jesus went to hell instead of us, The second reason is to rejoice that Jesus defeated death ahead of us. He descended into hell, but on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Jesus was dead, but he didn't stay that way. Jesus went to hell to beat a pathway out of death. So if we follow Jesus, we don't need to stay dead either. We can live forever. And this culminates in the third reason to savor this line in the Apostles' Creed. 
it proves just how much God loves us. Jesus came to tell people not that the Lord delights in torture and hates us, as Jonathan Edwards insinuated, but that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus loves so much that he went to hell so that we never have to. He died so that we can live forever. And what do you think Jesus was doing during those three days in the grave? Peter seems to suggest that he wasn't just snoozing until Sunday morning. No, he went to hell to save people even there. Peter writes, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago. By declaring that we believe in the God who not only humbled himself by becoming human, but actually descended into the darkness of hell in our place, we're declaring our faith in the God whose love is so great that he never gives up on us. And this is why I believe the way we think about hell shapes the way we think about God. So what do Christians believe? Let me summarize the three most common Christian theories before I get to the reason all of this matters so much. The first is Augustine's eternal conscious suffering. Many Christians hold this view, not only because of the clues in Scripture, but also because it reflects the seriousness of sin and promises justice for evil in our current world. This may be why this view is usually resisted by people with privilege, but embraced by those who suffer in this life due to cruelty and injustice. It promises that God will hold those who do evil to account. But despite its acceptance among many faithful Christians, including some on our pastoral staff, I'm not sure I agree. What I am sure of is that the callous way this has been described distorts the God who loves and saves us into a tyrant who hates us. The second theory that Rob Bell advocated is known as Christian universalism. Originally suggested by Origen, this is different from the New Age universalism that imagines a God who's just too much of a pushover to, to punish anyone or deal with, seriously with sin. This wimpy deity allows injustice to remain forever unanswered and unaccounted for. In contrast, Christian universalism, like the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, takes sin very seriously and promises both mercy and justice. In order to incorporate both, it posits that there could be a post-mortem time of pruning when our sin is cut away so that we can be readied for heaven. Jesus' friend Peter assures us the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Catholic theologians suggest that the fire imagery associated with death may refer to the way that fire is used to refine gold by burning away the dross until it's pure. God will require repentance, but is willing to wait people out until they finally release their selfishness and sin and embrace Jesus instead. 
as we read in Lamentations, no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. I truly appreciate that Christian Universalists, including some on our staff, are reminding us of God's astounding love and saving power. That said, Jesus and Paul keep warning us about the terrifying reality of judgment and permanent death, which Jesus calls hell. And they sure seem to believe that it will be some people's tragic destiny. This is why they fervently preach the gospel and pray for the lost and instruct us to do the same. Because God wants to save us from death, but his invitation requires a response. Besides, given how much it cost Jesus to die for us and how deeply he didn't want to do it, I'm not sure why Jesus would have gone to the cross if he knew that, well, God would end up saving everyone anyway. So I'm partial to the theory that hell isn't perpetual torture, but permanent death, the opposite of eternal life. Theologians call this annihilationism, that all those who reject God's persistent invitations back into relationship and refuse to follow Jesus by sacrificially loving others will miss out on eternity with God. They'll just stay dead. The fire will not be quenched. The worm will not die. But the corpses consumed by the fire and and the worms are simply absorbed back into the earth. Maybe none of these three theories gets it right. We can't know for sure. But what do we know? First, we know we can love God and God's word and yet disagree on this issue because God didn't think it was essential to give us all the details. God is focused on enabling us to defeat death, not debate it. God is focused on life, full life now, and eternal life with him forever. Secondly, contrary to the way Edwards and some callous Christians may feel, God hates death and takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't delight in death. He endured death in order to defeat it. Third, It's startling that when Jesus warns people about hell, he talks not about what they believe is true as what they do in response. In the passage we read today, those who followed Jesus by clothing the naked and feeding the hungry were welcomed into heaven, while those who ignored the needy made it clear they'd never really known the God of love. Too often, the people most eager to explain why we can't take these verses literally are the same people who want to take talk of eternal fire as literally as possible. But make no mistake, how you live and love matters. If you ignore the poor, if you laugh at purity, if you refuse to forgive, if you serve yourself at the expense of others, then you cannot be following Jesus. Jesus is the way to eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So if you're not following him in this life, there's little reason to believe you'll follow him into the next. Finally, Jesus warned that judgment and death are real and use the strongest possible terms to make sure we avoid it because God doesn't want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. 
Weirdly, 59% of Americans believe in hell, but only 3% suspect they may go there. We think hell is for others, for ISIS, Nazis, our enemies. But friends, the gospel is for us. Whenever Jesus talked about hell, he was always talking to self-righteous religious people who assumed they'd be the first in line for heaven. So Jesus warned that there's a way of life that leads to eternal life. But if you keep walking the way you're going now, you'll miss it. Because that's the wrong way. This is the real story of the scriptures. Humans ignore and disobey the God who loves them and make themselves miserable in the process. God is rightly angry because he made us for intimate relationship with him. And he loves the people we hurt. Can you imagine God's outrage at the dehumanizing cruelty we've seen in the Middle East this past week? How can you do that to people I made and I love? But rather than give up on us or crush us like bugs, God came to earth as Jesus to take all the blame for our sin and invite us back home to live with him forever, where there'll be no more pain, tears, disease, poverty, war, injustice, bitterness, loneliness, lying, or dying. The Bible doesn't waste time outlining every detail of what happens to those who refuse God's invitation to life. Instead, it focuses, focuses on helping us find the pathway to full life in this life and in the next. It's going to be so great that it's impossible to adequately describe or even imagine. So God doesn't want anyone to miss it. Please come, he shouts, sometimes at our backs as we run away. So he becomes a human like us and chases after us like a shepherd seeking a stubborn lost sheep. Come home. I'll make it right between us. Let me heal you, love you, and lead you in the way everlasting. This is the story we call the gospel. Good news. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God made a way even after we ran away. God will let us choose, but he does everything possible to make sure you don't miss his invitation to resurrection and everlasting life. Why do we celebrate that Jesus went to hell? Because if he went there, where do you imagine he wouldn't be willing to go to find you, embrace you, and lead you out of the darkness and into life? So many people today fear that, if, fear that God has given up on us. Your depression is so debilitating that you feel lost in the darkness, alone, hopeless. Or maybe your sin is so awful that God is disgusted with you, not interested in saving someone like you. Friends, Jesus went to hell to save us. So you can be sure that Jesus will go wherever you are to find you. The whole reason he came was to seek and save the lost. And that includes you and me, every one of us. So there are two things I'd like you to do with this today. The first is to embrace God's love for you more than simply save you from eternal death. God wants to rescue you from despair, depression, addiction, ego, greed, self-centeredness, bitterness, and every other foretaste of death we get in this life. God wants you to live to the full. 
both now and forever. Secondly, if Jesus was willing to go to hell to save us, where might we be willing to follow him in order to save others? Would we be willing to get involved in High Rock's prison ministry or youth group? Would we be willing to risk having real conversations about faith at our workplace or school? Conversations that might cost us something. Would we be willing to financially support gospel preaching and helping the hurting in Jesus' name? Would we be willing to lose something, even just our pride and social status, so that someone else might live more fully, both now and forever? You can start with something as simple as inviting someone to our Christmas concert. This is not a Jingle Bells kind of Christmas concert, but a Jesus Saves concert, where they'll not only enjoy warm hospitality and and beautiful music, but hear the story of the God who loves them so much that he came as Jesus to lead us towards full life. Perhaps you could ask God if there's someone he's sending you to invite to discover this good news. I realize that this has been a challenging sermon for some of you. For some, the challenge has been staying awake. Sorry, I I just, I I don't have any personal stories about hell. Although I have been to the RMV, I I guess I'm not really sure if that counts. But for others, the challenge has been reconsidering things you thought you knew for sure. But it's imperative that we consider these issues because thousands of people, like those I met at those college talks years ago, And like those you meet in your offices, dorm rooms, or dinner tables, many of those people cannot love God because they've received such a distorted, destructive image of him. But I believe in the God who so loved the world that he came as Jesus to heal, to serve, to be crucified by his enemies, in order to save his enemies. And then he blew the doors off death to make a way out for all of us. Ours is the God who saves. As we close, I invite you to take some time in quiet confession. Perhaps there are ways that you've gotten God all wrong, making him out to be less loving than he truly is. Maybe the person he's chasing after today is you. And there's a way you need to repent. Let let go of that sin that's holding you back so that you can receive the love of God. Or maybe there's a way that you've been complacent about those who seem destined to death. Maybe you need to confess that you've not loved the lost in the sacrificial ways that Jesus clearly does. Whatever you have to confess to the Lord, let's do that silently right now.